Hello, and welcome to Historically Speaking, Uncommon History with an Unconventional Pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 21 years. <laughs> sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Historically Speaking Podcast. Today, actually Memorial Day weekend that we are recording, is a perfect time to talk about the Forgotten War. Yes, the Korean War. The Korean War. And why is it called the Forgotten War? Well, it's kind of wedged in between World War II and the Vietnam War, but it is still one of the 10 largest wars in history. And at least 5 million people died in this war, which was officially a police action. So it wasn't even a declared war was never on declared. the part of the Americans. That's right. It was never a declared war. Uh, just a little background. Okay. World War II came to an end in 1945. Japanese surrendered in August. Uh, actually, the official surrender ceremony was September 2nd on the USS Missouri. The Japanese had taken over Korea in 1910. For centuries, even thousands of years, Korea had existed. It was known as the Hermit Kingdom. China, for centuries, had a kind of uh, slight dominion over Korea. But the Japanese in the late 19th century became very interested in Korea, as they did in many other. The Japanese were interested in much of Asia. And in 1910, they annexed Korea to Japan, which is the way it would remain until 1945, when the Japanese lost World War II. Korea was artificially divided at the 38th parallel in August of 1945. Wait, hang on. Divided by whom? It was divided by the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, actually, it was a young Dean Rusk, who would eventually be Secretary of State for JFK and uh, LBJ. Who so was, did the Koreans have any say in this? Nope. Koreans had no say in this. So basically, outsiders are coming in saying, we're going to divide up your country at this parallel. That's exactly right. And it was a completely artificial division. Uh, the few people in the U.S. Uh, Department of State and elsewhere who knew anything about Korea said, you can't divide it like this. Yeah, and like what if somebody came into America during the Civil War and said, okay, we're just going to divide you between North and well, South? this is just the way it was. And so the Soviets were north of the 38th parallel and the Americans were south. Now, the idea was that eventually Korea would be completely united under one government. That idea also prevailed about Germany. But as we know, Germany wasn't united for going on half a century after World War II. And Korea remains divided to this day. It certainly does. In 1948, when an imp by which time a total impasse had occurred between the Soviets and the Americans, in 1948, a separate government was established in North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which still exists, and in the south, below the 38th parallel, the Republic of Korea. North Korea was headed by an individual named Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the present dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And South Korea was headed by Syngman Rhee. And he was no uh, democracy-loving individual, but he hated communism. And in the Cold War, and this is really a, a first stage of the Cold War, the Korean War, as far as a major conflict is concerned, America was put into a position where they, oftentimes they had to uh, back up uh, less than savory individuals because they were anti-communist. <laughs> Welcome to the real world. I would remind everyone we had to align with Stalin 
in order to defeat Hitler. So you had two different governments of Korea by the end of 1948, North Korea, South Korea. And now was was the line as definitive as it is today, where it's where there's the checkpoint, you don't uh, go beyond this. The point. line is a little different from the thirty eighth parallel, which I'll get to later on, but it's roughly around the thirty eighth parallel. Okay. But yeah. it's definitely don't come to our country and we won't come to yours kind of thing. Uh it's a very frosty situation. In fact, technically the war is still going on because when it ended in July of fifty three it was only a truce. And that truce still exists. But uh, there is really no end to it, even to this day. That's astonishing. You have to put Korea in the context of the entire situation worldwide, geopolitically and otherwise. In 1949, NATO was created, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, many Western European countries, Canada, the United States, aligned to stand up to communism, Eastern Europe, USSR, etc. In 1949 as well... The nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek lost mainland China to Mao Zedong and the communists, a civil war that had been going on for many years, even before the Japanese began their invasion of China. And Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalists fled to Taiwan. And that country, and I know some people get upset if you call it a country. Be careful calling Taiwan a country. But I'm going to call Taiwan a country because I think it is. So you have two Chinas to this day, mainland China and, uh, and Taiwan. Mainland China, of course, is communist. So a lot of things are happening at this time. So I just want to be clear. The Americans after World War II, were, they, were there any based in Korea at this point, or were they just no, in Japan? Uh, the situation was that uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was born in 1880 and had performed brilliantly in World War II in the Pacific Theater, was made supreme commander of the Allied powers in Japan. He was known as SCAP, S-C-A-P. And his administration of Japan was brilliant. Uh, he did not try to humiliate the Japanese. He understood the Asian mind better than almost any American ever did. He was an enlightened leader of Japan. The Japanese came to truly admire MacArthur. They considered him a, a truly great human being. And when the what happened was, on June 25th, 1950, taken completely by surprise, North Korea invaded South Korea. Just out of the blue. Out of the blue. To the credit of the CIA, which had only been in existence for some three years, they had predicted months before that there may very well be an invasion of South Korea sometime in the summer of 1950. But, you know, you get a lot of these maybes. And what you, you can't do always act them. on all of those. Right. But on June 25th, 1950, the Korean War began with an invasion of some 100,000 or more North Koreans. And the South Koreans were caught completely napping. I mean, just totally taken unawares. And uh, Seoul, the capital of South Korea, fell a few days later on June 28th. Immediately, Douglas MacArthur was uh, ordered by President Truman to go to Korea and assess the situation. Now, how far is Japan from Korea? Not far. Doesn't Not far. It's across the Sea of Japan. Okay. And, and actually, MacArthur would make something like 17 trips to Korea during the Korean War. This was his first. And he was standing outside of Seoul, basically, as it was being captured, and he saw, he saw the mess that existed. And eventually, uh, something like 80% or more of South Korea was taken by North Korea almost immediately. I mean, within a week or so. And only the Pusan perimeter down in southeastern South Korea was left to South Koreans. 
Uh, it looked as though North Korea was going to win this war and win it very quickly. But they didn't count on Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur figured out a way to completely and totally surprise the North Koreans. Now, Americans began sending over troops as early as July 1st, and it's important here to uh, note that what the United Nations did. The United Nations is a very new organization. It only came into existence five years before. And on the very day of the invasion, the United, States, the United Nations condemned it. Two days later, they asked UN allied nations to support the South Koreans. And, of course, Americans would be the vast majority of those that would. American forces would make up around 90% of the forces that fought North Koreans. So were the Americans being sent directly to Korea, or were they going to the Japanese base and then going over? There were some already in Japan, of course, and they were being sent right. as early as July 1st over to uh, the southeastern perimeter around Busan. Okay. And so American forces started coming in within a week of the invasion. And then other allied forces, the British, New Zealanders, Australians, uh, even the Ethiopians sent a contingent, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, uh, Canada, uh, Turkey, Many allied nations came to help the South Koreans, but the vast majority... But I was going to say nowhere close. Nowhere close. I mean... To uh, the Americans. Uh, the Americans, something like 1.8 million American soldiers served in the Korean War. That's astonishing. 1.8 million. Mm -hmm. And yet, we we talk about Vietnam, we talk about World War II. The Forgotten War. It's yeah. just amazing the men who went, yeah. and women, who went right. to Korea, and right. we don't talk about it. No. Uh, fortunately, there is now a Korean War Veterans Memorial in D.C., and they are being more recognized, as they should be. Uh, South is it because it wasn't a declared war? Well, neither I, was Vietnam. I think people were so tired right after World War II. I think Korea was such a distant land that many people didn't even know about uh, that it didn't have the dynamism that World War II had. And then once you get to Vietnam... The reason why that became so well-known, I think, in part, was because it was the first war that was televised and oh, on a daily basis. So this is right when television is just coming in, 1950 or thereabouts. Well, Douglas MacArthur, in a brilliant stroke, on September 15th, landed behind the North Koreans at Incheon, not far south of Seoul. He got them completely unawares, and now he cut off their supply lines, he was behind, their, behind them. They panicked. They got out as fast as they could. Uh, they went across the 38th parallel. Eventually, the Americans and their allies would go across the 38th parallel. The decision was made by the United Nations in the first week of October, which would be about three weeks after this brilliant landing at Incheon, which was called Operation Chromite. Very dangerous landing, too, because of the high tides that existed. Uh, MacArthur took a huge risk, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff knew he was taking a risk, but they okayed it, and it, it paid off. In early October, the United Nations made a statement to the effect, passed a resolution, that Korea should be united. And so in October, moving into November, American forces and their allies moved up the peninsula way into North Korea. Pyongyang, For what purpose? To take all of Korea. Just to take it. Take it all. Uh, Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, fell on October 20th. So this is just coming a month after Incheon. So, so the tide has turned. The tide has turned completely, totally. And as you're moving toward the end of November, it looks as though the war is going to be over by Christmas. In fact, many soldiers were, were kind of more or less promised they'd be home with their family by Christmas and so on. I might add that the Korean winters are brutal. 
And the Allied soldiers, the Americans and the Allies, experienced that firsthand along with uh, South Korean soldiers. Temperatures went as far as 35 below zero. Korea is a very mountainous land. It has hot summers and it has extremely cold winters. The Americans, the, the dividing line between China and North Korea was the Yalu River. And the Chinese had indicated through intermediaries like India that they would not tolerate any movement toward the Yalu River, uh, especially by American forces. But MacArthur and Truman and others ignored this. In fact, on October 15th, as more and more of North Korea was being taken over by the Allied forces led by Douglas MacArthur, who was made supreme commander of all the forces in October, he met for the first and only time Harry Truman. Harry Truman flew to Wake Island. MacArthur flew from Japan to Wake Island. And they met there to discuss policy. They had two different meetings. Policy about uniting About uniting Korea, about uh, how long it would take, how they should implement so many different things. And MacArthur basically indicated to Truman that he could win the war. And the United Nations had already, a week before, said that Korea should be united. So it was kind of a go-ahead to do what you know, MacArthur felt was correct. Besides, MacArthur had performed brilliantly in, the, in World War II, and MacArthur had this huge stature as this, this almost invincible military figure. So Truman acquiesced, and uh, MacArthur kept pushing uh, American forces and Allied forces the whole way toward the Yalu River. It got to the point by late November that the Americans and others were on the high mountains right above the Yalu River looking over to China. We knew that as of October, the Chinese were secretly having the Yalu River crossed by many Chinese soldiers that were stationing themselves in the far north of North Korea. But MacArthur did not think that this would be a problem. Here, he was wrong. On November, So, I just want to be clear. So, North Koreans made a deal with China. Uh, North Korea, the reason why Kim Il-sung invaded South Korea to begin with was not so much he made a deal with China, he made a deal with Stalin. Oh, it was Stalin, Stalin. It was Stalin who was really Kim Il-sung's chief supporter. The Chinese went along with it. In fact, there were Russian pilots, although officially they weren't fighting, but they, there were Russians in North Korea as military advisors, flying combat planes, etc. Although officially Russia was not involved. And... Uh, Reports came of Chinese coming across the Yalu River. Uh, MacArthur did not think that was that important. The two main American forces were the 8th Army and X Corps, 10th Corps, and they were split. The Chinese were very clever. They only moved at night. During the day, they slept, and they kept themselves hidden, even from reconnaissance aircraft and so on. On November 26th, the Chinese struck in huge waves, hundreds of thousands attacking uh, Americans and others in far north North Korea. This must have been shocking for me. It was shocking. MacArthur was back in Japan where he had been since 1945. I mean, he would run things mostly from Japan. He was in Tokyo. And when the news first started coming in, his aides and others, they were ashen-faced. They, they was like, oh my God, we were about to win the war and now this. Well, the Chinese, now the Americans, to their credit, they retreated in good order. And, and they exacted a toll. They took a lot of Chinese lives, but they were pushed back nonetheless. This reminds me of what the Duke of Wellington said, <laughs> that the mark of a great general is to know when to retreat and how to do it. MacArthur, for about four days after the invasion began by the Chinese, 
hesitated. But after about four days, he realized that he had to retreat. Well, the Chinese pushed the Americans and the Allies the whole way back into South Korea. Seoul fell again for the second time on the 4th of January. I can't imagine those people who were trying to live in Seoul. Well, civilians were just slaughtered left and right. I mean, we, we at least 3 million South Korean civilians were killed. Just innocent uh, bystanders. And then think of all the ones made homeless, the ones who had, got disease, who were hungry, even starving. Uh, it was It was a horrible situation. Two days before Christmas, General Walker, the head of the 8th Army, was in a, a jeep accident and uh, died. And Matthew B. Ridgway was put in his place. Uh, Ridgway, by the way, was born in 1895 and would die in 1993. That's a pretty nice long life At there. the age of 98. Very competent general. So he was the head of the 8th Army. And MacArthur's the head of all of this. They actually, Ridgway pulled back to around 50 miles below Seoul and drew a line there and actually... That's as far as the Chinese with their North Korean allies got. And then began a counteroffensive from January to April by the Americans and their allies. Seoul was retaken on the 14th of March. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, thank, thank God. But at the same time, <laughs> right. and, here we and, go again. And so you're up here around the 38th parallel. Then there was a counteroffensive by the Chinese from April to May. Then there was another counteroffensive by the U.N. forces from May into early July. This is like a ginormous game of tug of war. Well, if you're looking at the big picture here, the Korean War is going to last from June of 1950 to July of 1953. The first year of the war resembles World War II in the sense that it is a very dynamic war. It's a war of a great deal of movement. The North Koreans pushing the whole way down into south, southern South Korea, the Americans and their allies pushing up toward the Yalu River, the Chinese pushing Americans and their allies back. So the first year of the war is a very fluid war. It's a war of tremendous movement. The last two years of the war is much more like World War One, a static war. Where you just dig in. Where, where you just there. dig in, you take yards at a time, maybe a mile at a time, or something like that. So the Korean War resembles World War Two in the first year, and then it resembles World War One in the last two years. Now, there's something that um, has to be mentioned here with respect to MacArthur. Once the Chinese came in, in late November of 1950, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, and pushed the Americans and their allies back into South Korea, took Seoul again and all that. Right. Truman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, the United Nations, they concluded what they wanted was a situation that existed before the war began, which would be a North Korea and a South Korea. They were ready to settle for a stalemate. MacArthur wasn't. MacArthur wanted to win. He felt that all of Korea should be taken. And as you move into 1951, by which time Ridgway is the head of the 8th Army, MacArthur is making statements that more or less contradict what President Truman is saying, especially from late March onwards. Now, who is he making these statements to? The uh, press? Well, for it's... instance, one of the statements he made was a reply to the leader of the uh, minority in the House of Representatives in the United States, uh, a guy named Martin, Joe Martin. And he basically indicated that there's no substitute for victory, that stalemate is immoral, it uh, wastes soldiers, and so on. And by early April, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, certainly Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, who did not like MacArthur, Harry Truman concluded that MacArthur had to go. But could it be argued that he was right? It could be argued, and it still is argued, that MacArthur was right. MacArthur 
initially, once the attack by the Chinese occurred, he wanted to use any methods necessary, including bombing across the Yalu River in China. In fact, he wanted to do that in October, even before the Chinese advance began. And the United States initially signed on to that, but then the UN allies got cold feet and said, no, no, no. MacArthur was very frustrated that he could not use all the power at his disposal to win the war. Yeah, I mean, essentially, he's fighting with one hand tied behind his back. I think that's one of the ways he would have put it, yes. Mm -hmm. MacArthur felt that a stalemate was absolutely unacceptable. MacArthur was an individual who saw things in black and white, no shades of gray. You win when you fight a war. You don't settle for a stalemate. And as Truman and his advisors increasingly in early 51, we're ready to just go back to where the situation was before the war began. MacArthur kept making statements that contradicted that, and especially this letter to Joe Martin, the Republican minority leader in the House. Well, on April 11, 1951, President Truman fired Douglas MacArthur. Now, how does that go? Does he make a phone call and say, hey, buddy, thank you for your actually, service? Actually, it was sent. It was No, it didn't go that way. MacArthur had a sense it was coming, and he wanted to retire before he would be fired. And Truman, well, of course, he or, wants to save face. Or Truman didn't want him. He said, I'm not going to let that bastard retire. I'm going to fire him. So MacArthur uh, got the notice from, uh, it went through different relays. So and, like a telegram, right, essentially. And, right. And eventually in Tokyo, he got it. His wife, Jean, really was told about it first. He was in his bathrobe having taken a nap right after lunch. And when he read the cable, which was very curt. He said to Gene, he said, well, Gene, we're finally going home. MacArthur had been in the Pacific area for 14 years without going back to America. Not once. Not once. No. In the Philippines, in Australia. That's amazing. In New Guinea, in various islands. And he was happy uh, there. He loved Asia. Uh, he particularly loved the Philippines. But he had a great admiration for the Japanese people whom he fought tenaciously. He had an uncanny ability to understand how the Asian mind worked, which almost no Westerner does. And the Asians knew that he knew that. And they appreciated him for that, especially the Japanese and the Filipinos. So MacArthur came back to America. So I, I'm just curious, what's the timeline? How long was the it? The timeline, well, he's fired in early April. About a one week later, I think it was April 19th, he and Jean left for Hawaii. At first, at first, he was going to go to the Philippines, which he loved, and then go to Australia. But in the middle of the night, after he got, it's almost within an hour or two of him getting fired, Herbert Hoover called him. Oh, surprise. Former, former President Hoover called him and said, no, you've got to come back to America, because if you don't come back to America, they're going to completely stain your reputation. The Truman administration will. So Douglas MacArthur didn't go to the Philippines, didn't go to Australia and elsewhere. He came to the United States. When he, he first flew to Hawaii, where there were huge crowds cheering him, he was given an honorary doctorate from the University of Hawaii. Well, that was nice. Then when he landed in California, there were hundreds of thousands of people there to greet him. Truman so he's was, a rock star. Truman, he's a rock star. Because overwhelmingly, the American people felt that Truman was wrong and MacArthur was correct. There's no substitute for victory. Well, look at all these men who died for nothing. Well, that was MacArthur's point. Stalemate is immoral. You put the soldier in to win. You don't put the soldier in. I mean, to if have you're asking stalemate. for my opinion, yeah. I agree with him. Well, what Truman? Look at it from Truman's point of view. The Soviets had just developed the atomic bomb in 1949. We were li now living in a world 
where nuclear weaponry existed. Truman was worried about World War III. If MacArthur went into Manchuria, went into China, he had to take a lot of things into account. Okay, when you put it that way. Yes. I mean, my own opinion is Harry Truman was a good man and Douglas MacArthur was a good man. Harry Truman had a pretty big ego. Douglas MacArthur had probably the biggest ego on the planet. But these were very gifted men in different ways. I think that it could be said that MacArthur had a soaring intellect. He was an absolutely brilliant human being who could discourse on almost any subject. Of course, he knew history extremely well, making references to ancient history on a regular basis. Well, he comes home to America. When, when Truman fired MacArthur, they started uh, all these telegrams and letters started coming to the White House. They were 20 to 1 in favor of MacArthur. Truman was vilified. He was burned in effigy uh, in various places of America. Do you think he was second-guessing himself at this point? No, I don't think Truman ever second-guessed himself. A very confident man, to his credit. And uh, there were state legislatures, like the Illinois state legislature, that uh, made a statement about how, you know, it was wrong to... uh, have done this. Well, and especially we're still in the middle of the war. We're still in the middle of the war. That's right. By the, the way, Matthew war. Matthew B. Ridgway was made the new SCAP, the new Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, and General James Van Fleet was made the head of the 8th Army. So MacArthur comes back, and then he eventually makes his way to Washington, D.C., where he addresses a joint session of Congress. Wow. Yes, he was invited. The Republicans actually got a lot of the Democrats to invite him to... to give a joint session of Congress. It's one of the most famous speeches probably ever before Congress. This is where he ended his speech. Old soldiers never die. They just fade away. He's the one who coined that phrase. Uh, Actually, it comes from another source, but he used it in a slight variation. He spent 52 years in the Army. He He entered West Point in 1899. And don't forget that his father... Arthur MacArthur was an heroic figure in the American Civil War and won the Congressional Medal of Honor, as MacArthur did. So he was born a soldier. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Some people are. Yeah. He was born to the military life. So doesn't he go to New York at some point? Oh, then he goes to New York. So this is after. Where they have a ticker tape parade. Millions come out to cheer him. Millions. The cleanup crews in New York City said they got four times as much of a cleanup for MacArthur as they did for Eisenhower when Eisenhower was given a ticker tape parade when he came back from Europe at the end of World War II. He was loved. Uh, He was absolutely at the time overwhelmingly. I mean, my own father, I didn't know this because I was just an infant at the time, but my own father, he he was very pro-MacArthur. He felt that Truman had made a big mistake. But... In defense of Truman, you cannot have a military commander contradicting the President of the United States. The President of the United States is the commander-in-chief. And if you disagree with the President, then you either resign, or you carry out his policies, you don't contradict him in an open way. And MacArthur more or less did that. So I'm guessing the Chinese are thrilled at this news that MacArthur's been fired. Yeah, the Chinese really didn't like MacArthur. I'm sure they thought, oh, great. We right. got that guy out of there, and now well, we can win. Well, the thing about it is Ridgway was a very capable commander. Um, General James Van Fleet, I uh, mean, very capable. Ridgway was a pretty solid individual. And uh, he did so things. So what's, what's happening now in well, the war? Well, what's happening in the war is a stalemate for the next two years, between 51 and 53. So all those soldiers are just sitting there. 
they're just fighting for a matter of yards, a mile or two, back and forth for two years. Um, peace negotiations, uh, armistice negotiations opened up in July of 51, but they were drag on for two years. The major sticking point was the repatriation of prisoners of war. The point of the, the United Nations felt that if captured Chinese and North Koreans didn't want to go back, they should be allowed to stay. In, to stay uh, in South Korea. stay in South Korea and go elsewhere, wherever they wanted to go. The position of the communists in North Korea and China was, no, no, everybody had to be repatriated. So that was the main sticking point, which continued for two years. There were other sticking points as well. But these negotiations are going on at Panmunjom for two years while soldiers are killing each other, fighting for... And I'm for, sure they're saying, hurry up, people. Right. It's just a, It's just such a tragedy. Anyway, getting back to MacArthur, uh, he had this ticker tape parade in New York, and I mean, Truman was just, oh my gosh, he was so vilified. And, he must have uh, hated that. Uh, well, As I, would. I, I would. think Truman felt that he did the right thing. The vast majority of historians and others right now think that Truman did do the right thing. It didn't seem like it at the time, but he could not allow a commander in the field to contradict. But now you have this... Mm -hmm hero, this oh, yeah. huge, larger-than-life person right. back mm -hmm. in the States, right. I mean, I'd vote for him for president. Well, he uh, thought about running for president in 1948, I believe he didn't do very well in the Wisconsin primary, and How that, that, went, possible? that went nowhere. Because he was, I mean, don't forget, he was running Japan from 45 to 51. But he's a huge hero in the United States. Right. Well, he wasn't as politically shrewd as some. In 1952, there was a lot of mention of him running for president, but Dwight Eisenhower got the Republican nod and not uh, MacArthur. And uh, I'm sure that was a surprise to MacArthur. MacArthur, actually, when he was in the Philippines, uh, Eisenhower was his subordinate. Um, oh, goodness. In That's the movie awkward. with Gregory Peck, Gregory Peck plays Douglas MacArthur. The movie called MacArthur, I think it was made in 78. I recommend the movie. I think it does a lot of justice. Well, any movie with Gregory Peck is worth seeing. Well, what's interesting is Gregory Peck in real life was very liberal, very much uh, a Democrat. MacArthur was very conservative, very much a Republican. But to the credit of Gregory Peck, he, he didn't take any cheap shots. He played MacArthur like he was. Well, a good actor does. Right. Well, he's a great actor. Right? Yeah. And uh, there's a scene in that movie where MacArthur's wife, Jean, says, when Eisenhower gets the nomination, Republican nomination for president in 52, she says, what kind of president do you think uh, Ike will be? And MacArthur replied to his wife. He said, I think he'll make a fine president. He was the best clerk I ever had. <laughs> a little jab there. <laughs> yeah, I think it really stung MacArthur's ego. And MacArthur would continue to live until 1964. He was in pretty good health until the last year of his life. Now, he lived out the rest of his days in New York City, correct? That's right, the Waldorf Astoria. Mm -hmm. That's so odd to come from right. Japan and yeah. that lifestyle right. to New York City. Right, and uh, the floor he lived on, I think it was the 37th floor or something like that. No one was allowed to go there. I mean, the whole staff at the Waldorf Astoria had direction, you know, very specific directions or uh, commands to make sure that no one went to that floor. You couldn't get up there. Same thing, Herbert Hoover uh, lived in the Waldorf Astoria. He was one of the few individuals who were wel was welcomed regularly at the uh, MacArthur apartment complex there. So then what's going to happen in Korea? Well, the negotiations continue. The Allied forces fight bravely. The Chinese were very capable soldiers. And this stalemate continued for two years. Finally, on July 27th, 1953, the war came to a, uh, I don't want to say it came to an end, but a truce was 
So they finally were able to agree on right. some things. And something like 14,000 captured POWs by the Allied forces were allowed to remain and go where they wanted. Uh, a handful of prisoners of war taken by the North Koreans or Chinese wanted to remain in North Korea. It was like 20, 21. That blows my mind. There was one, British, one, there was one British guy. There were like 21 them. or something like that, Americans. And uh, most of them eventually... Uh, came back to the United States. Yeah, I would think they'd live to regret that decision. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. But uh, there were about 10,000 American prisoners of war. Only about 3,000 came back. The other 7,000 were either killed or died of mistreatment or harsh. Well, and then the MIAs. Well, you have the MIAs, too. I mean, you have 34,000 killed in, in, uh, in battle. You have thousands and thousands and thousands, I think 8,000 MIAs or something like that. Get 10,000 POWs, and these are just the Americans. We, I don't want to forget the Canadians, the Australians, you know, the New Zealanders, the Brits. Yeah, or, but there's tens of that. thousands of Americans. There's right. hundreds right. from the other countries. Yeah, uh, but I don't want to lessen the uh, Allied effort by that. But yes, over 90% of the forces there were American. South Korea is free because the USA exists, and one knows that or should know it. And I'll just say to our listeners here, I am no fan of Marxism. I think that Karl Marx got virtually everything wrong. Determinism, which I call voodoo for intellectuals, dialectical materialism, which is Teutonic nonsense, uh, the labor value theory, which is just stupid. Yeah, but so many people are like, well, Marxism in theory is a great thing. Yeah, when I hear that, it's like, no, it's not. No, Marxism, Marxism in theory proves George Orwell's assessment, which is that some ideas are so stupid, only intellectuals could come up with them. Well, that certainly holds true today, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Beware the intellectuals. Yes. In fact, JFK, he was very uh, on to uh, how intellectuals are oftentimes paralyzed by their own thought or come up with really wacky ideas. And JFK said he had rarely met an intellectual with both feet on the ground. That was That's the way he put it. By the way, JFK actually, when he was president, uh, met MacArthur. He actually came to visit him at the Waldorf Astoria. And uh, he was supposed to just, you know, it was just a courtesy call because he was in New York City anyway to give a speech or something. And he was supposed to spend something like 20 minutes talking to MacArthur. He spent like three three hours. And afterwards, he told his aides, he said, that was one of the most fascinating conversations I ever had. The man knows so much, is so shrewd, so well, insightful. Well, just his life experience. I mean, that would be the kind of person that you could talk to for hours and hours and still not scratch the surface. All right. Yeah. I mean, MacArthur was practically a genius. And boy, the battle of the egos, Truman versus MacArthur, because <laughs> you didn't want to underestimate Harry Truman. And then Dean Acheson, Truman's Secretary of State, he was as vilified as Truman was. But I, I need to point this out. George Marshall, who was Secretary of Defense at the time, completely supported Truman, and so did Ormore Bradley. And oh, others. that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a very big deal. I mean, the firing of MacArthur is still a controversy to this day. You know, Should he have been allowed to do whatever he wanted? And, and win the war, including bombing China, if he had to, Chinese... I mean, uh, it makes you wonder, or would that have led us to World War III? Or, and then, or would it have right. ended it, and then all of Korea would be free? Yeah, we'll never know. But, I mean, North Korea is basically one gigantic prison So the camp. war is mm -hmm. never over. It's still, it's still technically, technically going on. in theory yeah. happening. Mm -hmm. It's still... It was only a truce in July of 53. Now, there's still American bases in South Korea. Oh, yeah, aren't there? absolutely. We have thousands and thousands of American soldiers in South Korea to this day, yeah, as a deterrent. As a deterrent. <laughs> and it just it goes to show something else, too, which is that the great power has to consider things and do things that most polities don't. As much as I like Canada and Denmark, 
it's easy to be Canada or Denmark compared to the United States of America. Well, a lot of people say, you know, America oversteps its well, boundaries. Absolutely. The great power sometimes makes mistakes. I mean, Rome did, uh, the British Empire did at times. But you have so many more things you have to do that you're going to make big mistakes at times. Welcome I mean, like, for instance, going into Afghanistan. Well, the Soviets made a mistake going into Afghanistan as of 1979. And then, and then we made the very for, same mistake. We, we've been there for 20 years. Um, and we're going to leave it? And then it's going to go right back to where it was. Very likely. By the way, just something on Dwight Eisenhower. When he ran for president in 1952 against Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic candidate, Eisenhower said, I will go to Korea. Uh, And that was, I mean, people had a lot of trust in Eisenhower. Eisenhower is a very shrewd individual. What did that mean? What it meant really was he'll find an end to the war. He'll find an end to this stalemate. I will go there and negotiate myself. Right. And, And I think that really helped having the truce occur by July of 53 because Eisenhower came in in January of 53. Something else happened in 53. On March 5th, 1953, Stalin died. And so Kim Il-sung's greatest ally was no longer. That, I think, was another reason why the truce occurred in 1953. But there were a variety of reasons why. Both sides were exhausted. We estimate that perhaps as many as a million Chinese soldiers died. Certainly it was many hundreds of thousands. Three million South Korean And for what? Died. What did the Chinese get out of it? The Chinese got a lot out of it from a geopolitical point of view. They emerged as, as a real power, quite obvious to the world. It's not something Stalin thought would occur. He thought that uh, the Korean War would make China more dependent on Russia and so on, and that didn't happen. You didn't want to underestimate Mao Zedong. He was so it's just trying to flexing their muscle and right, showing the world. Right, right. We're a and there were power. there were at times calls for uh, nationalist troops from Taiwan to come and fight in Korea, but that never occurred. Even proposals that nationalist troops should invade the mainland, which never occurred, and I think that would have been a disaster. So there are a lot of dynamics going on, and. Why did America think Korea was important? I'm reminded of the story when the invasion first began in, in June of 1950. An aide to Dean Acheson, Dean Acheson was Secretary of State, said, why are we going into Korea? Why does Korea matter to us? And he looked back at the aide and he said, NATO. The point being that if our European allies didn't see us stand up against communist aggression in Asia, they would conclude that we might not stand up against communist aggression in Europe. Welcome to the burden of being the great power. Yeah, but you could also say, so what? Well, Truman and Atchison and, I mean, the United Nations was pretty united there with respect to opposing this aggression by North Korea. By the way, in North Korea to this day, it's not taught that they were the aggressors. South Korea and the Americans were the aggressors. Don't forget that in World War II, the official line by the Nazi government was that Poland invaded Germany in September of 39, not Germany invaded Poland. When you're dealing with totalitarian regimes, you can expect a great deal of mendacity. Well, they just make up their own history and teach they, it to their kids. They kind of do. Facts are optional. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a tremendous uh, tragedy. Uh, I mean, 34,000 well, Americans lost their lives. Many were severely, over 100,000 were wounded, and many of those wounded. And there's lost. still so many Korean veterans that are still alive. That's correct. And are still suffering. Right. It was, you know, it kind of wedged in there between World War II and the Vietnam War. And it's still not well known enough, in my opinion. And yet it's one of the 10 largest wars in history, as I mentioned before. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Well, this whole topic came up because I was driving to West Virginia and I kept seeing bridges and highways dedicated to Korean War veterans. Yes, it was a, a large war, a tragic war, and it uh, in and many ways... a war ways, that never ended. In a way, and war never ended and really settled nothing. Well, that certainly puts it into perspective in a way. And I'm glad Korean veterans are finally being extended at least some recognition. They yeah, just, they didn't they have a choice. It. They were just sent there. That's right. So veterans out there who might mm-hmm. be listening, thank you no matter what war you fought. Mm-hmm. And we have a very interesting topic for next time. Yes, we do. We're going to deal with Calvin Coolidge, the uh, 30th president of the United States, who would be my choice for the most underestimated president in American history. A much shrewder and multidimensional man than a lot of people realize. Silent Cal. Silent Cal. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, listeners, thank you for being here. Thank you for spending this time with us. And we look forward to Calvin Coolidge. Yes, we do. Can't wait. (laughs) Stay well, stay safe. Goodbye. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past. <laughs> <laughs>